Hello, and welcome to 30 for 30 Podcasts, our series of original audio documentaries from ESPN Films and ESPN Audio. My name is Jody Avergan. This is episode two of our fourth season, all about the most famous poker tournament of all, the $10,000 buy-in World Series of Poker main event. This last summer, nearly 8,000 people competed for a chance at the top prize of $8.8 million. But it wasn't always like this. In the first three decades since its beginning in 1970, the World Series was a much smaller affair, a few hundred players at most. Then came the 2003 World Series of Poker, and all of a sudden, poker became a thing. 30 for 30 producer Keith Romer brings us the story of the story that changed poker forever. A quick warning, this episode, it's about gamblers, maybe no surprise here, contains mature language. And now, all in, sparking the poker boom. Where do you even, where do you begin? You, well, you begin with the end. This could be the last card of the 2003 World Series of Poker. You have all the characters and storylines that you want to follow, and you try to figure out the best way to weave them in and out. One card away from a new world. There's only one thing that you know for certain that absolutely 100% has to be included in the show. It's a five. My name is Matt Morantz. I'm executive producer of 4 for 1 Productions. And back in 2003, we produced the World Series of Poker. Matt Morantz knew a lot about telling stories on television. He actually had a master's degree in journalism. All of the barbaric rigors of the world behind bars. I've done a documentary about prisons. I've done a documentary about organized crime. I didn't care if I died in the streets. No, I didn't care. If I I've covered civil wars in Nicaragua and the first Gulf War. The desire to tell stories, I think, really, it's just about curiosity. Um, it's a big world out there. One day, Morantz picked up a book about professional poker players, and his curiosity started to kick in. He went to ESPN and said, this is my next show. I started pitching them, we should do something on the World Series of Poker. The players are just fascinating. But the executives he was pitching weren't buying it. ESPN always would say, who's ever going to watch a show about poker and say no. It wasn't like it was a new idea to ESPN. Poker had been on television for a long time, and it always was the same. We're back with more action at the World Series of Poker. There are now five players remaining at the final table. Worst anyone Newspaper columnist Norman Chad was a gambler himself, and even he didn't like those old shows. Most of the time when I watched... And now it's time for the flop. It's, it's the old thing about watching paint dry. You have no idea what the players have. Jim checks. Bob Schifoni reaching is going to add... If you're a casual viewer, it's, it's hard to watch. It's nine guys sitting around a table staring at each other. Jim Spain decides he's not bluffing and folds. And you weren't sure how or why or anything that happened, and then the show would be over. And it wasn't like the people playing on TV were exactly Wheaties box material. There's still a stigma for some people about walking into a card room and playing poker. It was frowned upon. There's a whole thing about the, like a back room with guys with cigars. A lot of the poker players out there, they lie about their profession. Still, ESPN had to air something. In July or August, when all they have is baseball and they don't have it on every night, there's a programming hole there. And poker was cheap. You pay literally billions for the NFL and the NBA and the MLB. For the, the poker thing, they were paying, you know, like I don't know, not even a half a million dollars. They're they paying like $10,000. It was virtually free. In the end, ESPN signed up for a seven-episode show, 
not just about the main event final table, but about the entire five-day tournament. For Morantz, it was great, except for one little detail. You have to understand, I knew nothing about poker. We were an outfit that did not deserve to be producing the World Series of Poker. I mean, we were idiots. Still, Morantz had a show to make, which meant it was time for a little research. So I go out to Vegas for a month. To enter the dazzle that is glitter gold to downtown Las Vegas, where Binion's Horseshoe Hotel and Casino can be found. I walk into Binion's for the first time, and I don't know anybody. All I know is there's a sign that says the World Series of Poker is being played in this room. High-stakes poker action goes on 24 hours a day during World Series time. It's a place that feels a little bit illicit, a little bit dangerous, a little bit sleazy. It smells like urine coming out of the bathrooms. It's one of those places where nothing really good is going to happen. It wasn't just outsiders who thought this about Binion's. Nolan Dalla was PR director for the casino at the time, and even he thought the place was a little bit shady. Every low-life scumbag millionaire, I mean, they they were shoulder-to-shoulder in that place 24-7. There was even an on-site pawnbroker. He wore these loud checkered jackets, half-shaven all the time, horn-rimmed glasses, white shoes. And his name, I'm not making the name up, his real name was Sam Angel. And he's the pawnbroker. Gamblers, I mean, are literally pawning their jewelry, their watches. This this is going on inside the casino. So, I mean, this place was a complete clusterfuck. It was a circus. My reaction to Binion's, once you get past the smell and the sounds and things like that, was this is the perfect setting to do a show about people who play poker for a living. I'm Doyle Brunson, 84 years old, and I've been a professional poker player since I was uh, 22 years old. My name is Johnny Chan, winning 87, 88, and runner-up in 89 of the World Series of Poker. I'm Phil Helmuth, 14-time world champion of poker. It was like all the people that you would ever want to tell a story about somehow found their way to this, you know, ballroom on the second floor of this dilapidated hotel. The tournament attracted the greatest poker players in the world. But then you'd also just see normal, everyday people who just come out to the World Series of Poker to take a shot. One of those normal, everyday people was a 27-year-old named Chris Moneymaker. Chris had developed a taste for gambling in the 90s when he'd been a student at the University of Tennessee. I didn't do a whole lot of gambling my freshman year. I had a really good GPA. Um, by sophomore year, that, that had stopped. I figured out you could drink anytime you wanted, and then I also figured out you could sports bet. At first, Chris couldn't lose. He had such a good run that his dad started going in on bets with him. We ended up sending down some money to an offshore sportsbook account. And uh, we were doing really well. Um, I think we had run up in the tune of $60,000 over the course of, of the year. Then things went south. On Saturday, Chris drove with some buddies to a frat party a few hours away. He called in his bets to his bookmaker from the road. Lions of Penn State. They will face Big Ten rival Iowa. The Hawkeyes also... First halves, teasers, parlays. He bet thousands of dollars that day. Then... Chris got very, very drunk. I ended up sleeping with a friend of mine's girl on the golf course, which was bad. Also bad? 
losing every single bet he had made. Once again, the final score here at Beaver Stadium is Penn State 61, Iowa 21. The entire 60 grand he and his father had had in their account was gone. So yeah, that ended up uh, being a pretty bad day. It wasn't until I got all the way back to Knoxville that my dad finally called, hung up the phone, and we didn't talk for another like two days, which for me and my dad was pretty significant. Chris eventually patched things up with his dad. He got his degree, and in 2001, he got an accounting job and moved to Nashville. But adult life wasn't the easiest fit. You know, I was heavily drinking back then. I was married, but I wasn't happy. Also, he was broke. Not counting mortgage and stuff, I probably had fifteen, twenty thousand dollars $20,000 in debt. I mean, that's like, you know, half my year's paycheck. Listen, here's the thing. If you can't spot the sucker in your first half hour at the table, then you are the sucker. It was around then that Chris discovered the movie Rounders. You're making a run at it, aren't you? Rolling up a stake and going to Vegas. I can beat the game. Maybe. It was like someone had made a movie just for Chris. I've probably watched the movie, I would say, probably 20 times. Hanging around. Kids got alligator blood. Can't get rid of him. The movie pitched a fantasy that was super appealing to someone like Chris. A fantasy about how if you made the right gamble at the exact right moment, you could escape your mundane, dead-end life. I sat with the best in the world. And I won. Put a fucking move on, Chan, you son of a bitch. Chris fell hard for poker. And he wasn't the only one. Back in the early 2000s, hundreds of thousands of novices all over the world found their way to late-night games that were held not in smoky back rooms, but on a handful of new internet poker sites. On work trips for his new accounting job, Chris would stay up all night in his hotel room, staring at his laptop, playing poker on a site called PokerStars. I found it really easy. People were not that good. I only put down a couple hundred bucks, but, you know, I was able to play and, you know, build up that bankroll. And, I mean, I remember I had $2,200 in my account at one point, and I thought I was, you know, rocking and rolling. One day, on a lark, Chris put up $86 to buy into a nine-player tournament. He won, which qualified him for his second, bigger tournament. They are giving away three seats to the main, the WCP main event, and fourth place was 8000 in cash. Combined... The players' buy-ins were enough to pay for three $10,000 entry fees into the World Series main event and a fourth-place prize of $8,000 in cash. To Chris, the idea was simple. I was trying to get fourth place. Eight grand would get him halfway out of debt. But Chris did so well that when it started to get down to the last few players, he wasn't sure he could lose enough fast enough to be certain that he wouldn't end up in the top three. He even told the other players in the little chat window that he was trying to lose. And I said, listen, guys, y'all take the... I said, you get three guys take the seat. I'll take fourth. And someone else, this guy, I remember his screen name was Got Milk, said, no, I want fourth. I don't want the seat either. A poker buddy of Chris's who was watching online called Chris on the phone and tried to convince him to stop. It was like Chris had missed the entire point of rounders. You can't lose what you don't put in the middle. But you can't win much either. In the end, Chris went ahead and won the World Series seat. But to guarantee himself something, 
he convinced his dad and a different friend to invest $2,000 each. If he won, they would win too. And if he lost, at least he'd have their 4000 bucks. Chris wasn't the only one who had qualified off of the internet. So I walk in, and there were 30, I think 39 was the number, 39 guys standing in the middle of the, of the upstairs. Binion's PR director, Nolan Dalla, was in charge of welcoming these new players to the World Series. A lot of them were wearing black shirts, and they all looked kind of young, which was unusual, by the way. A poker player was an old guy. He was an old white guy, usually from the South. He wore a cowboy hat, maybe a ball cap, wore a windbreaker. But you see these young people all standing in the hallway. Like Chris Moneymaker, all those, it turns out, 37 guys in black shirts had won their buy-ins on Poker Stars. The presence of all these new players was great for pros like Phil Hellmuth. I mean, to me, internet poker players in 2003 were super easy to read. And that was lovely. Johnny Chan felt pretty much the same way. If you had heard that somebody was an internet player, what would that have meant to you? Yum, yum. Between the new internet players and the old school poker pros, 839 players signed up for the main event in 2003. A new record. All those $10,000 entry fees added up to a record prize pool, too. The winner would take home $2.5 million. I remember sitting there with my head between my legs, sort of breathing really hard and just super nervous. Every one of these guys are professionals, and I'm this guy wearing a poker star shirt that basically labels me as an amateur. What did you think your chances were? Zero. To the normal person home, they'd think, oh, it's an 839 to one shot to win it. It's not that at all. Especially in 2003, there were so many bad players. Of the 839 players, 400 can't win, no matter what happens. I would say at least 350 dead money. So another $3.5 million dead money. Where else you gamble with $3.5 million dead money into the pool? Only at the World Series of Poker. To document the stories of the 839 players at that year's World Series, Matt Morantz hired a full production team. There's about 30 people on our staff, producers, cameramen, grips, uh, production assistants. And one color commentator, newspaper columnist Norman Chad. I'm not sure what a color commentator is. I never understand the color thing, but that's what he hired me to do. Morantz had hired Chad because he thought he was funny, but also because they thought the same way about how poker on television should work. The biggest problems with the old shows were two-pronged and simple. You did not know what the cards were, and you did not know who the players were. Matt Morantz thought he had figured out solutions to both of those problems. The first one was a technical fix. We used lipstick cameras, small little cameras that look like a lipstick holder, and we just sewed them into the cushion of the, of the poker table. Those tiny cameras would let viewers at home see the players' cards. Binion's was concerned. They thought the secrets would get out. After days of back and forth, Morantz finally convinced Binions to allow the cameras. But not before the casino added some personnel to the TV production booth. And in front of it were security guards with guns. Scary, but also awesome. Morantz also thought he had figured out a way to get viewers interested in the players. You have to give them a reason why they should watch and why they should care about these individual players. At least part of Morantz's solution? Celebrity. 
the easiest starting point is with big names in the game that might resonate with a casual person. Yes, he's going all in, and Chan has him. Johnny Chan, the master. Johnny Chan's about the most famous poker player on earth. And it's not just because he was a great player who won the world championships, but he figures primarily in rounders. He's presented in rounders for not even a minute's time, but that minute, it just made him just a larger than life figure. The Matt Damon character is down in Atlantic City. About eight, nine months ago, I'm at the Taj and it's late and I see Johnny Chan walk in. And he goes, he sits 300, 600. And you know, the whole place stops. Johnny Chan walks in, everybody puts an eye on him. Rounders defined the poker dream as not just winning, but winning against the best. Matt Damon's character goes right at Johnny Chan. I, I just decided, you know, I don't care about the money. I'm just going to outplay the guy. I'm just going to outplay this guy, this hand. Because it's a movie, it works. I sat with the best in the world, and I won. Matt Morantz wanted that kind of drama and that kind of star power. He was going to approach his production less like a sports event and more like a movie. We were going to shoot the entire event live. But not broadcast it live. Matt walked me through Binion's. And one of the first things I asked him is, I said, "What's uh, so Matt, where's our broadcasting vantage point? And he cocked his head and looked at me like I was from Mars. And I said, oh, I'm such an idiot. I've never used the term vantage point in my life. What am, what am I, an Ivy Leaguer? So I said, where are we broadcasting from? And he looked at me again weirdly. He says, you know, we don't do any broadcasting from here. I go, what? He says, no, it's all done afterwards. I want to tell you a story. It's a story about a scandal, broken relationships, gossip, rumors, money, corporate rivalry, and a broom. A performance-enhancing broom. My name is John Cullen. I'm a comedian, podcaster, and for 20 years, I was a semi-professional curler. And I want to tell you the story about how a single broom almost imploded the 500-year-old sport of curling. We felt like we were bringing a knife to a gunfight. It's the story of a superstar and his fall from grace. Oh, I was being dragged through the mud. It's the story of two brother entrepreneurs with a dream. <laughs> I said, that's great news. It's a story of intrigue. I still don't understand why we want to keep his name secret. The full story has never been told, so I'm going to tell it. Broomgate, how a broom almost killed curling. It was a year I'd like to forget. To listen to Broomgate, search for Broomgate in your favorite podcast app. That's all one word, Broomgate. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. Hello, everybody. Welcome to Las Vegas, Nevada, and Binion's Horseshoe Casino. I'm Lon McCarran. As the tournament got started, the TV crew fanned out around the casino to film the action. Day one of this grueling five-day event reveals a record number of 839 entrants. Morantz told his team... Don't try to capture everything. Just focus on the top players. And at our featured table today, we're very lucky to have two of the biggest names in the game, two-time champion Doyle Brunson and defending champion Robert Varconi, a nice contrast in style. Morantz had even given his cameraman binders with the 40 most important players. 
So it was really like elementary school. Here is a photo book, a picture book of the people that you're supposed to follow. I was so proud of that picture book. So Doyle Brunson, the two-time world champion, is eliminated on day one. The exit scene About an hour into the tournament, about 20 of those players were knocked out. And we're all looking at each other, and they're all laughing at me. It's like, what do I do now? You know, all my pictures are gone. And that is it. Okay, I'm done. Good luck, everybody. Robert Tarconi has been eliminated. We had a very detailed plan. We just realized our detailed plan was fundamentally flawed, you know, within a couple hours. Morantz and his team had to scramble. The big fear in any television production is you don't have footage. If you don't have footage, it doesn't exist. But it was next to impossible to predict which of these hundreds of players Morantz was going to end up needing footage of. Welcome back to the World Series of Poker in Las Vegas. You're looking at Barry Greenstein, the chip leader. You think he's in the driver's seat, right? Well, wrong. Nobody has ever won this tourney after leading on day one. Trailing Barry by about 25,000 was an investor from Houston named Sam Farha. That first name, Barry Greenstein, he was in the picture book. But figuring out who Farha was wasn't quite as simple. Sam Farha was a bit of a mystery man. Uh, when we'd interview players, we'd always ask them, okay, well, you know, what do you do for a living? Uh, I do remember Sam not wanting to talk about it. Uh, you know, he was a businessman and just kind of left it at that. He wouldn't tell people that he was a gambler. He was a, an investor, a professional businessman. He gambles for a living. Uh, and he gambles big. To tournament director Matt Savage, Farha was a known quantity. You know, he wasn't known as the best player, but he was known as the biggest action player. He had no fear. Sammy Farha famously said, you know, I got to win this thing just to break even for this for this month. And he's not kidding, you know. Farha looked great on camera. Apparently Sammy Farha came out of the womb with a cigarette dangling out of his mouth with hair and a look of Humphrey Bogart from a 1945 film. But Morantz had to figure out a way to present Farha to people watching at home that went beyond an investor from Houston. Sam Farha. I'm very superstitious. If I have a winning session, I'll keep the same things on. The same moves, the same thing. I think the key to creating a, a character in any TV show is to come up with a way for the viewer to latch on to them. I don't smoke, and I keep the same cigarette. And if I lose a pot, I'll change the cigarette. Throw it away, put another one. Very superstitious. Give me one thing. One thing that the viewer, the next day after watching the show, can go, oh, yeah, I remember that person. That person did this. That's a good luck cigarette unlit in his mouth. For can't the first day here. of the five-day tournament ended sometime after midnight. Ooh, hey, players, I'm going to hand you a bag. Please put your chips in the bag. Morantz's crew turned off their cameras. The 300-odd players who had survived went off to get some sleep. And Binion's PR director, Nolan Dalla, headed up to his office to put together a list of the players who remained in the tournament. One by one, typing the names up with the chip counts, with the hometowns. And I get to this name, and it said, Chris Moneymaker. I was like, Chris Moneymaker what? And now you have to understand what poker players do. There's Poker players have nicknames. Everyone knows Doyle Brunson, but his name is... Texas Dolly or Bobby the Owl Baldwin. So I thought, here's a poker player who's probably his name is Chris Smith and maybe Moneymaker's his nickname. Chris Moneymaker Smith, Chris Moneymaker Jones. You understand what I mean? And of course it's 4.15 and I've got another 35 slips there in that stack. And I was mad at the guy. I said, this jerk is, won't even 
fill it out properly. Eventually, Dalla got through his list and went off to bed. Day two started, and he went to find his mystery man. Chris uh, looks like what you would expect somebody that graduated from the University of Tennessee that loved football and drinks beer to look like when he shows up at the Binion's Horseshoe that you don't really take seriously. He's an amateur poker player that looks like a nice guy to have a beer with. Baseball cap, big belly, wraparound sunglasses, little goatee. So I go up and I said, excuse me, can you tell me your real name, please? Something I've dealt with my entire life. People don't believe my name. So I was like, yeah, here. You know, so he pulls out the wallet. There's my ID. Yeah, it's, it's me. Tennessee driver's license. And there's the name, Christopher Brian Moneymaker. I said, sir, I'm so sorry. I just didn't think that could be a real name. I'm so, and of course he laughs. He was so nice. He couldn't have been nicer. Part of the reason for how nice he was... On day one, Chris Moneymaker from Tennessee had absolutely crushed his table. He had turned his starting stack of 10,000 in chips into more than 60,000. Which put me in like fourth or fifth place. So obviously, I'm ecstatic. We had 839 players. 63 players got paid out of the 839. Chris's first priority? Finish at least 63rd and win the minimum, $15,000. I mean, if I go out there and I play in the World Series main event and I bust and I don't pay off any of my credit card debt, all this is for naught. If you've never played in the World Series of Poker before, you want to make the money for sure. Your mentality generally is to be very conservative. I mean, I'm not joking when I said I am probably was like number 800 out of 839 is skill level in that tournament. So Chris had a very simple strategy, survive. I can sit there and fold the entire day two and make day three. That was my plan. As it happened, though, there were two problems with Chris's plan. The first problem was that, just like on day one, on day two, Chris kept getting dealt cards that were too good to fold. You know, I've got 180,000, 190,000, maybe over 200,000 at this point. As players get knocked out, players get moved around to make sure that the tables have an equal number of players at every table. Chris's second problem was the players who were getting moved to his table. Towards the very end of day two, Johnny Chan sits down. A swath of people move in behind our table that they're going to spectate. They're watching Johnny play. The whole dynamic of the table just changed. He took the table over immediately. I felt very confident when, when I sit, sit in um, any table. I, I was very comfortable. I, I didn't pay any attention. Johnny Chan, it seemed like to me, was purposely picking on me. Yum, yum. On day three, Chris was still stuck at Johnny Chan's table. Only now, it was ESPN's featured table. And a good look at Chris Moneymaker, just a regular guy, an accountant for a restaurant chain here with the big boys. He's playing next to one of his heroes and a two-time champion right there, Johnny Chan. Chris Moneymaker is just the, uh, the accessory, the prop, basically, that Johnny Chan is supposed to knock out of the tournament. We played probably three or four pots together. I go on him. Johnny Chan, going to put all the chips in. And he won all of them. So Johnny Chan wins the pot. And it basically went on like this between Chan and Moneymaker until the players got ready for one of their scheduled breaks. So it's time for the dinner break here at Binion's. As the players fold, they will move away from the table to get some extra time. But two players didn't fold, Johnny Chan and Chris Moneymaker. And right now we have the perfect player against the amateur of amateur, Mano Almano. He bet I raised. Happen. He is going to raise back to Moneymaker. I'm all in. Ah, so there you have it. Chris Moneymaker laying down the challenge to Johnny Chan. All Johnny has right now is a draw. I'd be surprised if he goes any further. 
Johnny's gonna put it on the line. Honestly, before the hand was flipped up, I would have bet a lot of money. He had me beat. But it turned out Chris was a massive favorite. So long as the next card wasn't a two, Johnny Chan would be out of the tournament. All right, put a deuce up there. In my head, it was what the what? And actually, Chris Moneymaker, I could sworn he maybe took off his sunglasses and he looked at Johnny. He was shocked to see what Johnny's hand was. And Johnny was a deep, deep doo-doo when all the money went in. All right, here we go. Moment of truth. The turn card, a nine of hearts, and that's going to do it. Chris Moneymaker with the ace-high flush takes down Johnny Chan. Wow, this is like Buster Douglas knocking out Mike Tyson. And then he was gone like that. Yep. You know, I got to live the rounder's dream. I sat with the best in the world. And I won. Put a fucking move on, Chan, you son of a bitch. I tell you what, when I got knocked out by Moneymaker, I feel like somebody died in my family. Matt Morantz felt pretty much the same way. The show he was making was supposed to be for guys like Chris Moneymaker, wannabe poker pros who learned everything they knew from rounders. It wasn't supposed to be about them. So you're a little disappointed just purely from a storytelling perspective because you lost your main character. If this was a drama show, you know, your main character just got killed off. Norman Chad, of our original field of 839 players, we are down to just a fraction of that. Poker is a game. Uh, anybody can win at it in any given day. That's the beauty of these tournaments. People can come through them and, and just survive. Mr. Moneymaker has been walking between raindrops all day, but right now he's up against aces. That's a storm. Some of the decisions I made and some of the plays that I made were probably pretty bad. I just didn't know any better. To be frank with you, he was really bad. You know, he, he was really a rank amateur. But in poker, skill level and results don't always match up exactly. At the end of four marathon days of poker, both Chris Moneymaker and Sam Farha were still alive, trying to make the tournament's final table. Ten remain. It's about 2 a.m. and all the outer tables are empty and the crowd has gathered around the only table left. Tonight, ten people are battling for nine spots. We're just completely drained. My goal is to not play any hands. I'm going to sit here and do nothing. One more person will be eliminated. This is a tough table indeed. Everybody wants to make the final table, so everybody's playing like I am. Everybody's playing super tight. Jason Lester folds, Harrington folds, up to Gray. The only that guy that's not really playing super tight is probably Phil Ivey. Phil Ivey. And we're still looking at Phil Ivey in the field, and I still think he's the man to beat. He was only 26 years old, but most pros already considered him one of the most dangerous players in the game. Phil Ivey at that point, you know, he was the young player who was going to become the greatest player in the world. With 10 people left, Ivey took over the table. He's splashing around more than most everybody else. Chris mostly tried to stay out of his way, but around four in the morning, he found a hand that even he wasn't going to fold. But he's looking at ace-queen, so he's going to make some sort of move. He bets 60,000. Action over to Phil Ivey now, and looking at a couple of nines. He'll call it. The flop comes two queens. A monster flop for Chris Moneymaker, who makes three queens and becomes a prohibitive favorite. Chris bets small, laying a trap for Ivy. Well, Phil Ivy is indeed going to take that bait, and he'll call it. 
We had no big names left. The only name that even could possibly be a big name was Phil Ivey. And plus, he's the best player. Here comes a turn, and it's a oh, nine, it's, and that gives Phil Ivey a full house. Miracle on 4th Street for Phil Ivey, who now has the full house and the better hand. But nobody knows it here except no, Phil Ivey and And there's and no us. reason for Moneymaker to put to, to assume that Ivey had the pocket nines. So he's going to bet 200000 oh. Understandably, he, he just can't think he has that type of hand to beat him. He's got to believe the three queens are best right now. I just remember knowing, even without knowing poker, that this was a big moment. Um, and I think it was because the room got really quiet. Lolly. He is all in. all in. And quickly called. The pot size is one million now. Yeah. Moneymaker is disgusted. He, he never could have assumed the two nines in the hole for Phil Ivey. And now he is going to need an ace, a queen, or a six on the river to win the hand. Chris Moneymaker had just a one in six chance of winning the hand. Five times out of six, Phil Ivey wins. Goes on to the final table with a mountain of chips. Moneymaker's looking for an ace on the river. Or another queen. Here we go. We're going to see one more card. It's an ace! An incredible knockout blow for probably the best player left in the tournament who's oh. gone down. Oh, amazing. Phil Ivey loses with a full house to a better full house of Chris Moneymaker. Who has now knocked out heavyweights Johnny Chan, Umberto Brennis, and Phil Ivey. My goodness. Who is this young man? It was like a lightning bolt to me that hit me and knocked me down. It was so incredible to watch that hand live. Incredible as it might have been, that ace on the river meant that Norman Chad and the rest of the production team were left with a final table with exactly zero star players. I cannot tell you how heartbroken I was because I said, oh, no Phil Ive at the final table. We're screwed. The 2003 World Series of Poker was an event that came to exist finally not as five days in a downtown Las Vegas casino, but as seven episodes broadcast on ESPN. It was a story whose contours were shaped, at least in part, by people who never played a hand of poker in the tournament. It was a TV show made by Matt Morantz and his team months after the fact. We had over a thousand hours of footage that we now have to go back to New York and, uh, figure out how we're going to tell seven one-hour stories. As they watched the tape, they realized that a lot of the choices they had made were working. We edited the first hand from day one. And he starts off with two aces, Norman. And we all kind of had the same interest reaction. And he slow plays it. He's just going to call with the aces. We're like, that's really compelling to watch, and we're not sure why. The way they shot it, the way they edited it, was just so intoxicating to me. There were the two camera moves that Matt Morantz relied on. You have this two-shot where the players were looking at each other over their shoulder and kind of staring each other down. And you had close-ups. You would see the player, like, you know, just dying inside as they tried to figure out what the right move was. Then there was the way Morantz used the whole card cameras. He thought it was, it was really critical to show the peaks, literally the players looking at their whole cards. You would see the cards, like, coming up and then... Bam! Wow, he has aces. It's amazing. And he did that every single time. Here are kings. 
That's a pretty good hand to have when you got to make a move. The whole card cameras created an omniscient viewer. That even though he has the second best hand in poker, he doesn't know he's up against the best hand in poker right now. He's got a decision. You knew this guy was going to lose. Everyone in the world knew this guy was going to lose, except the guy who was about to lose. Bullen. You then could kind of have this suspenseful game. We were really approaching this like a drama, like you would see on, on, on normal TV. You, you establish a conflict early, and then you resolve it, and you know, the good guys beat the bad guys. This is sports in a nutshell. On July 8th, nearly two months after the World Series ended, episode one was broadcast on ESPN. So the first episode airs, and we hear back from ESPN, you know, the next day or the day after, that the ratings were great. And it wasn't in the tone of, man, congratulations, the ratings were great. It was more of like a disbelief, like, hey, uh, the ratings were great. This is unbelievable. I just, this, I was in shock. I was thrilled, but I was in shock that it was taking off this way. I didn't think there would be an audience, but uh, I was wrong. America fell in love with poker. However popular the first episodes were, for the broadcast to truly be considered a success, it had to nail its season finale. Spread over two weeks, Episodes 6 and 7 would reveal which character survived the final table to become the new world champion. Americans watching at home were greeted with a montage of dazzling Las Vegas casino signs and the by now familiar voice of host Lon McCarran. Over four days and nearly 50 hours of poker have been played here at Binion's Horseshoe Casino, and the big payday is finally here. The picture cut to a shot of the dingy Binion's ballroom, rows of stackable chairs quickly filling with friends and family of the remaining players. The crowd ready to witness a bit of history as the nine surviving players... There's a Seinfeld episode that once had a, a cockfight, a rooster fight. Uh, I think it was Little Jerry was fighting. And you know, you're in some you know, ridiculous warehouse basement. That's what the final table reminds me of. You have, you know, at the most, a couple hundred people around this boxing ring with nine players in it. So now let's put the cards in the air. The final day of the 2003 World Series of Poker is coming up next. Seven of the nine players assembled at that brightly lit poker table were seasoned pros, including a former champion. Dan Harrington. He won this tournament back in 1995. An Iranian-born tournament expert. That man, Amir Vahidi. Yeah, a tournament veteran with a lot of titles under his belt. And unlit cigarette perched at the corner of his mouth, the investor from Houston. Sam Farha, a very active player throughout. Then there was the unlikely chip leader. Norm, so far, Chris Moneymaker using his newness to a great advantage. We've seen other guys do that as well. Yeah, the amateur, it's hard to read, and also the amateur doesn't have as much pressure as the professional, which is an advantage. As a kind of emotional surrogate for the stone-faced moneymaker, the cameras picked out Chris's father in the crowd. His dad is here in the house supporting him. That's the boy. That's the kid. But viewers who weren't blood relations didn't much like Chris's chances. Binion's PR director, Nolan Dalla. Moneymaker is probably not somebody I... Even at the final table, the final nine, I don't think I even paid him two seconds of attention. And here it comes. Two eights and an ace. Chris Moneymaker has a pair of aces. Oh, and he, he continues to sleep with angels. This is a cutthroat game. This is a game that doesn't take prisoners. Chris Moneymaker needs some help with these cards to come. And wow, did he get it. <laughs> He's flopped the top straight. My goodness. 
Eight, nine, ten, Jack Queen. Wow. When you have this kind of an event going on, you don't waste time with, with, you don't waste time with the extras. You're, you're looking for the stars. And a lot of us still at that late stage thought that this is one of the extras. A good story. Tennessee accountant coming out of nowhere, winning his way in through a satellite. And he finishes in, hey, let's, I'll just make this up, seventh place. Hey, great story. Yeah, that's, that's, that's paragraph six. Well done, sir. Congratulations, Mr. Moneymaker. We'll probably never see you again, but great story. For him. And the body count continues to grow for Chris Moneymaker. He's become the Terminator, knocking out another player. I knew he could play, but I didn't know he could play this good. Yeah. I wonder how much money he's taken off Dad over the years. When just two players remained, they brought out the money. Well, this is it. 839 players down to just two. On their TVs, viewers watched a security guard flanked by three men with shotguns carrying a box full of bricks of cash through the crowd. And there you see the $2.5 million first prize carried up from the vault in a $2 cardboard box. It's a Binion's tradition. Unlike other events, also a tradition, not really putting millions of dollars in the box. A lot of people don't know that it's not real money. It's, uh, there's 100s on the outside and dollars on the inside. After the cash was stacked on a side table, the cameras turned their attention to the two men who still remained. On one side of the long green table, Sam Farhaw, in a black suit jacket and white shirt unbuttoned halfway down his chest. Across from him, Chris Moneymaker, wearing his Poker Stars hat and polo shirt, his eyes hidden behind mirrored wraparound sunglasses. And these two individuals could not be more opposite. They, they are like night and I mean, day. Th- this isn't exactly David versus Goliath, but it's maybe David versus Hulk Hogan. I mean, Sammy's been around the block. He's seen the slingshot. He's been in so many more situations than Chris Moneymaker. Just before play resumed, a conversation took place between Moneymaker and Farha that viewers at home did not have the opportunity to see. Moneymaker offered Farha a deal. I'm like, man, you know, it's been great. It's been fun. You just want to chop it up and play for it. They could split the difference between the $2.5 million first prize and the $1.3 million for second. Just play for the title of World Series champion. And he said, no, honestly, you know, you played really well, but, you know, I think I deserve a little bit more. You know, I'm, I'm an experienced player. I've been, this is what I do. And, and I just remember looking at him dead in the face, and I was pissed when he said that. I said, fuck you, let's play. No bet from Moneymaker, but, of course, Sam Farha bets 150000 I remember it being Sammy having this kind of like wry smile, like this kid's not beating me heads up. There's just no chance. Price of poker is going to go high now. My plan was just to bulldoze the living hell out of him. I I wanted to beat him bad. After dozens of hands back and forth, Chris chased a draw all the way to the final card. And is a three of hearts. And missed everything. Moneymaker doesn't get to either draw. But with his worthless king high... Chris decided he was going to outplay this guy. This hand. Come on. Chris is all in. Chris Moneymaker going all in with nothing. Honestly, I felt like someone else took over my body. I don't know. I can't explain it to this day what happened. A stunning play from Moneymaker, who missed his draws, has nothing, and now has put Sam Farhall all in. You must have missed your flush, huh? Sam's absolutely right. He would have to put all his chips in, and if he lost this pot, he would be out of the tournament. He is not going to do it. 
Chris Moneymaker bluffs Sam Farha out of a big stack of money. And considering this situation, I know we're early in the century, but that's the bluff of the century. What a play from Chris Moneymaker. I don't know where it came from. I don't know how it happened. Um, but I just turned into a beast. Like, I was playing really good poker. We, we like our history to be all clean and neat and tidy and almost like inevitable. Sam Farha bets 100000 to Moneymaker, who quickly calls it. Uh, you know, history doesn't work that way. And Sammy, a two-to-one favorite right now going into the flop. Yeah, like, it's messy and it's clunky and millions of things have to happen in exactly in the same order. Once again, Chris Moneymaker has gotten another fortunate flop. One little thing doesn't go that way. You know, history changes. Chris Moneymaker checks now over to Sam Farha, who throws in a bet of 175000 Chris Moneymaker didn't know it yet. Sitting there under the lights, staring across the green felt at Sam Farha. But his life as an anonymous accountant was over. And I thought, you know, I'd play a poker tournament here, I'd play a poker tournament there, and go back to work. Nothing much would change. Chris was becoming a character in a very different kind of story. A story that the entire world was about to know. We have a guy by the name of Chris Moneymaker on the program. Do you know who this guy is, Paul? I've heard a little bit about him. This guy is like Chris Moneymaker would go on Letterman and Jimmy Kimmel. Did he change his name to that? No, he didn't change his name to that. He's always been Chris Moneymaker. He would sign six- and seven-figure deals to represent poker stars and Canadian club whiskey. When people come up and ask me for advice on how to get started, I tell them usually, get online on the poker stars. TV networks would piggyback on Matt Morantz's success- and broadcast thousands of hours of poker programs. Good evening, and welcome to Celebrity Poker Showdown. Internet poker would become a billion-dollar business, and the main event of the World Series of Poker would attract 2,000, then 5,000, then 8,000 entrants. But none of that had happened yet. Chris Moneymaker checks now over to Sam Farha, who throws in a bet of 175000 One more card still needed to go Chris's way. This could be the last card of the 2003 World Series of Poker. It's a five. With a full house, Chris Moneymaker eliminates Sam Farha just euphoria from him. You know, he's running around, he's jumping in the crowd, his dad, a beautiful moment with his dad. This is beyond fairy tale. It's inconceivable. And you can see from Moneymaker's face that it, that it, it, it's, he still can't believe it after three or four minutes. You have to sort of pinch yourself and be like, wow, this, this really can't be happening. He still can't, it hasn't sunk in yet. Where do you even, where do you begin? You, well, you begin with the end. There's only one thing that you know for certain that absolutely 100% has to be included in the show. And that is Chris Moneymaker is going to win. So you work backwards from there.
Thanks for listening to 30 for 30 Podcasts. My name is Jody Avergan. ESPN Film senior producer Aaron Leiden and I are series editors. This story was produced and reported by Keith Romer. Later this week, we'll be posting a bonus conversation between me and Keith about the making of this episode. He's got some great stories and some great bonus tapes, so keep your eye out for that. This episode was mixed by 30 for 30's Mitra Kaboli. The 30 for 30 podcast team also includes Ryan Mantell, Andrew Mambo, and Julia Lowry-Henderson. We got editorial help from David Kestenbaum, additional production support from Vindy Anton, Taylor Barfield, Brad Ross, and Annie Selsey. Roger Jackson provided fact-checking. Special thanks to 441 Productions, Eric Seidel, Andrew Feldman, Dan Goldman, Carol Anderson, and Eric Drake. For ESPN Films, our executive producers are Connor Shell, Rob King, and Libby Geist. Our development team is Adam Newhouse and Jenna Anthony. Our team also includes Deirdre Fenton, Jennifer Thorpe, Kath Sankey, Louise Argianis, Maria Delgado, Tom Picard, Paul Williard, Eve Wolf, and Alex Bowen. The ESPN audio team includes Trog Keller, Tom Ricks, Megan Judge, Pete Giannisini, Ryan Graner, Devin McGowan, and Elizabeth Fearman. Thanks to ESPN's Ryan Hurley, Ray Dinahan, RJ Santillo, Rodney Belazer, and Tony Chow. Our theme music was composed by Rishikesh Hirway, who also makes the excellent podcast Song Exploder. On our website, there's a transcript of this and all of our episodes and lots more, so check it out, 30for30podcast.com. Be sure to subscribe to 30 for 30 in the ESPN app, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or wherever you listen. We'll be back soon with more 30 for 30.